You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we go. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcasting across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And I'm Joseph Toscombe, hosting today's program. Look, I'd like to send all my regards to all those of our listeners in New South Wales and Queensland, especially on Radio Nag in Yapoon who have been taking the anarchist world this week for almost 20 years via the Community Radio Network. Uh, All the best in their struggles against uh, what's happening there regarding the fires that are ravaging uh, large parts of uh, Queensland and New South Wales. Coming from Victoria, I mean, we're well aware of uh, what it's like. Now, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, an anarchist society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society which is based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power where wealth is held in common. Simple concept. What's anarchism all about? Anarchos without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You devolve power, that fancy word for sharing, and you hold wealth in common. Simple concepts which give people personal security, national security, and which allows them to develop themselves to their fullest potential. So it's a different way of living, but it is a legitimate way of living. It's a struggle that people have been involved in since time immemorial. So if you're involved in the struggle to share power, that's devolve power, break down hierarchy, and the struggle to share wealth, well, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, you are an anarchist because you are striving towards those goals of creating an egalitarian community. And as we know, the basis of power is inequalities in power and wealth. And historically... It doesn't matter the colour of your skin, what language you speak, where you live. It's inequalities in power and wealth, which that struggle against those inequalities, which bind us together across the globe. Now, I'd like to comment on the bushfires. Now, look, I've look, I've got personal experience. I had a house burnt down about twenty years ago, so you know, unlike a lot of people who are talking off the top of their heads. I think I've got a little bit of experience. And I'd like to break down the response into three categories. One is the immediate response. The second 
categories, the medium response and the long-term response. And I think people don't really understand until their house has burnt down how difficult the situation is, not just in terms of lost memories and lost photographs and lost pets and some extreme situations, you know, family being put in an extremely dangerous situation and saved through other, other people's heroism, but the devastating immediate consequences of losing everything. And that's the thing that I remember the most, that devastating immediate consequence that the bills don't stop, the bills keep coming in. You've got to worry about whether if you've got insurance or not, whether the insurance you're covered, because you take out insurance doesn't mean you're automatically covered because of all the twists and turns. That period where the insurance company does its investigations and makes up its mind whether it's going to uh, honour its claim or not. And I remember in our situation, because ours was an urban fire, that we didn't actually receive one cent from anybody. So it was a particularly difficult situation, especially when you've got uh, children to support and a sick partner. It is quite difficult. So in the immediate, the immediate concern basically is to provide financial support, not the miserable financial support which governments now provide, $400 for a child and $1,000 for an adult, doesn't even pay, you know, for a new set of clothes. So financial support. We should have a national compensation scheme, a little bit like Medicare, where people pay through the taxation system to a central fund which provides immediate financial support to people, realistic financial support until they are able to be rehoused permanently. Because once your primary place residence burns down, as I said before, the bills keep flooding in and the bank doesn't care. They still want their mortgage repayments on time. And everybody else wants their payments so immediate financial support. The second thing is that as the climate changes and we move from climate change to climate emergency, obviously the way that we as a communities around this country tackle the issue of how to respond to increasing natural disasters ranging from fires to monsoons to cyclones. We need some type of federal system, not a state-based system, which most responses are based on today, but a federal system which allows resources to be deployed in a reasonable manner to tackle the situation, irrespective of where it is in the country, whether it's in the southern tip of the Tasmania or the northern tip of Cape, Cape York or the Torres Strait or uh, Cape Canavan in the west or um, Byron Bay Lighthouse in the east, which we don't have. We have this piecemeal response. And it's quite interesting that before the uh, 2009 
bushfire disaster in Victoria that I actually uh, wrote to one of the news, major newspapers that had a letter published which caused a lot of consternation. This was at least six months before, warning about the dire consequences of actually not having that centralised support system ready to go. And again, we don't have that. So what we see is a piecemeal response to dealing with the situation. You know, it makes nice pictures, but it doesn't really deal with the situation or helps to prevent the situation. If there's one thing that local communities who find themselves in that situation today are crying out for is for those inputs to be put in before. It is now a major issue. And thirdly, while our political representatives, and remember, they are our political representatives, you elected them. You may not have elected them personally, but as a country we felt these were the people that were best able to cope with the situation. Uh, quibbling about whether climate change is real, whether it's human, you know, made, whether it's as our the National Party member for Armidale keeps telling us all about the magnetic rays or something. Who knows what's in his mind? You know, who knows what's in that man's mind and most of the uh, their minds. But it's interesting, isn't it? Here we have us fighting tooth and nail to protect industries which need to be phased out rapidly in order to decrease the ever-increasing threats posed by climate change, which is leading to a climate emergency around the globe. And we continue to be the most, the single greatest individual emitter of CO2 in the world. So it's a three-phase, but unfortunately in a disaster situation, what will happen in, you know, about two weeks down the track is the fires have been fought, property's no longer in danger, it uh, falls off the uh, radar as far as the uh, corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC is concerned. Individuals, as I found 20 years ago, are left to deal with the situation as best they can. And uh, the community forgets. This is a, an ever-increasing issue. It's an issue which we'll ha- we need as a community to address. And we are not going to address it as long as we allow the mantra of, you know, the mission statement. If you, if, you know, if you... If you turn up at an airport in Australia, there should be a mission statement written on, you know, not despair all you enter here, but creating ever-increasing profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. That should be our motto because that's what we're about. Whether it's the watering down of workplace manslaughter laws in Victoria, whether it's corporate welfare giving corporations billions of dollars of assistance in inverted commas to maximise their profits. Well, it's allowing them to 
exploit our resources, the country's resources, for a peppercorn rent, which allowing the rich and powerful to continue to avoid taxation legally, obviously, and the list goes on and on. So when we enter this country, we should have that emblazoned, emblazoned on billboards across the country. Arches should be erected in front of every town, every village, every suburb. Maximise profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. And that is our motto. That is our mission statement. That is the essence of living in Australia in the 21st century. Maximise profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Whether it's the threats posed by the climate emergency we now face, whether it's threats posed by increasing... uh, number of natural catastrophes which we now face, whether it's the exploitation of workers which we see on a day-to-day basis, whether it's not providing enough public services to deal with the changing climate, whether it's not providing for the 33% of Australians who rely on social security benefits to survive, It's the same mantra which is used over and over and over and over and over again. Maximise profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Forget about the individual cost to the individual. Forget about the cost to the community as a whole, the national costs. Forget about the costs to the environment. Forget about the costs regarding climate change. As long as you can make a buck, it's all right, boys and girls. As long as you can make a buck, it's all right. Because social social responsibility, morals, ethics has nothing to do with living in Australia in the 21st century. And this is not just a problem in Australia, it's a problem around the globe but it's particularly acute in this country because over the last 40 years, you, we, we as a community, maybe not you individually, but we as a community have swallowed the lie that if you remove regulations which protect people, which have been created over decades of struggle, you will improve people's lives. Boom, boom. If you allow countries who treat their workers as disposable garbage and pay them minimum wage, you allow us to trade with them at the expense of local workers, it's good because we can buy cheap clothes and footwear. Boom, boom. If you give away this country's assets, which have been built through the blood, sweat and tears of generations of Australians who have these resources have been used to provide public services, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's infrastructure, and the list goes on and on, 
everything, whether it's electricity, gas, energy, the situation will improve for everybody. Boom, boom. Or whether we allow large, unaccountable corporations to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and set the parliamentary agenda. And that will be good for all of us. Boom, boom. Forget about the trickle-down effect. Forget about the trickle-down effect. Nothing is going to change unless you get involved in that struggle for radical social egalitarian change. Now, I'd like to thank all those people that came down to Murchison on the 10th of November. That's Murchison in regional Victoria to pay their respects to Francesco Fantine, an anarchist, anti-militarist, anti-fascist, atheist who was murdered at Camp Lovedale, an internment camp for Italians in South Australia in 1942. He paid the ultimate price for refusing, after being interned as an enemy alien when he had been fighting against fascism for the last 25 years in this country, imprisoned with hundreds of uh, dyed-in-the-wool fascists and uh, Italian prisoners of war, when he was cruelly bludgeoned to death with a 4B2 as he was bending over to take a drink from a tap because he had the audacity not to give the fascist salute to Mussolini when he was badgered and pressured to do so by fellow inmates. He was bludgeoned to death. So he he, he now shares a cemetery. It's basically a... 129 other people, 128 men and one woman in Murchison. So I'd like to thank all those people. And if you missed this year, there's always next year. The ceremony is usually held on the uh, the Sunday closest to Armistice Day. Uh, and obviously, uh, mark it in your calendar. Join us next year from 10am. But I'd like to thank all those people who made the effort to get there this year. Thank you. All right. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. It's a little slogan I made up. Well, you never have an original idea. I'm sure somebody else made it up and I uh, stole it. It's a good good slogan to have when you're on a protest. Coordinated corporate corruption. You can't see their crimes on CCT. V. Now, if you go, you know, if you if you're a burglar, Guinea's to Gooseberry, you're going to be caught on a camera somewhere, and you're going to be arrested and punished. But if you steal hundreds of millions of dollars from people, and you're a large corporation, there's no CCT camera to see what you're doing, and it's highly likely that you're going to get away with it. And you do get away with it if we look at the. Uh, Royal Commission to the uh, financial sector in this country. But it's interesting that Victoria Police have now taken on the same mantra. That's right. They've taken on the same mantra. They've been issued with 11,000 body cameras and you'd think that when you're interacting with a law and order that having a camera there, a body camera, would somehow you know, be useful, useful aid for the citizen. 
and a useful aid for the police officers involved because obviously many false accusations are made. Well, now that the uh, Victoria Police have been issued body cameras, it's quite interesting to actually look at the regulations which govern the use of those cameras. And I think it make it would make uh, you know the uh, leader of the free world a very happy man because we now have the uh, possibility that the Victoria Police no longer have to rely on their uh, their eyes and their ears when they go to court and you know you know tell us what happened. They can now do really wonderful things with these body cameras. They can switch them on and off when they like. It's not they're not they're not there on continuously when they're interacting with the public. They can switch them on and off if they don't like the situation. They don't have to switch it on. And even more exciting, they can actually edit the film before any court appearance. Do you like that? They can actually edit it, take out all the nasty bits where they point the gun at you and go bang bang. And then they can limit access to your legal team to what's actually on the body camera. So what's the point of having a body camera? Let's go back to the good old days when the cops gave one story and you gave another story and the magistrate made up their mind which story they'd accept. And in 98% of cases, it been the, the police version and 2% of cases, your version. Because the way it's going now, it's going to be 100% their version. Could you imagine that? Extraordinary, isn't it? But... That's the regulations which govern the use of body cameras for Victoria Police. And all those people who are very worried about the Hong protesters wearing masks, well, you'll be pleased to know that, Victoria, it is illegal to wear a mask anywhere. Wouldn't be nice to have a mask ball in the middle of the city, but that's another story. Let's move on. This is the Anarchist World This Week. Broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Just want to make a few comments about the West Papua Independence Movement. Been involved in the independence struggle for over 60 years. Currently, things have uh, got a little bit out of hand in West Papua. As West Papuans seen that they're going to become strangers in their own land, uh, stepping up their offensive against the Indonesian occupation of their land. And this has resulted in deaths and torture, extrajudicial executions, and the list goes on and on. Now, I'm convener of the West Papuan Rent Collective. And the West Papuan Rent Collective has now been going for about five years. And the whole purpose of the Rent Collective is to raise money to pay for the rent of an office, not in some dingy, you know, back room, but a proper office for the West Papua Independence Movement, which then can use this office as a coordinating office to coordinate West Papua Independence struggle around the globe, and especially their struggle to have the matter heard in the United Nations and the Decolonisation Committee. Now... Unlike, unlike, you know, other movements, 
we're not there to tell the West Papuans how to run their independence struggle. We're not there to tell the West Papuans how to run their office. We are there to provide the rent to keep the office opening. And after something's been open three to four years, people forget how important an office like this can be for the West Papuan independence struggle. And we have increasing problems attracting people to the West Papuan Rent Collective. Now, you don't get a tax deduction by supporting the West Papuan Rent Collective. You can do it anonymously if you want to go on a trip to Indonesia, which I don't want to. It's a dollar a day. It's very simple. It's a dollar a day. What may be coffee money, two cups of coffee for you in a week, helps the West Papuan refugees and asylum seekers and permanent residents and citizens in this country to conduct their independent struggle. Now, remember, West Papua is not on the other side of the world. It's not in the Western Sahara. West Papua is 72 kilometres from Australia. We've seen over a half a million people from a population of less than 1.5 million die in that struggle over the last 60 years, an armed struggle which continues in the mountains because the whole place has not been pacified. And the reason West Papua is the jewel in the Indonesian crown is because of its natural resources, all the mineral resources, gold, uranium, iron ore, you name it, timber resources, Fishing resources. It's all about resources. It helps to uh, keep the Indonesian economy afloat. So I'm encouraging you not just to donate without knowing what you're buying, in inverted commas, but I'm inviting you to the West Papua Rent Collective Christmas Party. We have an end-of-year party which is on Sunday the 8th of December, which is about a month away, at the West Papuan office, 838 Collins Street in Docklands. Lunch at 1pm, provided by Dapul Sampati, the Papuan kitchen. No cost for West Papuan rent collective members. $15 for everybody else. At 2pm, we have the Paran Accordion Band, a documentary by the Act of No Choice and a report by Jacob Rumbiak, Dr Jacob Rumbiak, the uh, current West Papuan, the, the, um, the, the head of the Foreign Affairs Department of the West Papuan uh, Government in Exile, uh, talk about where the West Papuan struggle is now. 3 p.m., pop your uh, cake and coffee. So just put it in your diary. You don't have to ring anybody up. Turn up. 838 Collins Street, Docklands. But if you do want to let people know you're going, you can go to frwpwomensoffice at gmail.com. Now, obviously, have a look at the premises. Talk to the West Papuans. Listen to what they have to say, and if you like what you see, why don't you uh, join the West Papuan Rent Collective? We need about 15 new members, people 
lose interest, people die, people move, people have financial difficulties. So I'm encouraging you to come across at 1pm on uh, Sunday, the 8th of December, 838 Collins Street, Docklands. There'll be information up on the websites in the next few weeks, but I just want you to put that in your diary today. And if you want to do something really good next year and you want to buy a family member or a friend a great gift, buy them a one-year membership to the West Parkwood Rent Collective. You'll get a warm inner glow, and I'm sure we can provide you a certificate to give to your uh, friend, because what's the point of buying another perishable item or another consumer item? I mean, we're drowning in consuming stuff. Why don't we do something individually that's uh, powerful, which assists hundreds of thousands of people to achieve uh, independence. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's right. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages on, if you want to join the Rent Collective, you can leave a message on 0439 395 489. I'll send you the relevant material. Uh, you can go to the Facebook page, uh, the uh, West Parkland Facebook page on the FRWP Women's Office, and uh, you'll get more information there. Now, other pages to go to, public housing, everybody's business. Don't forget that... Uh, we do have rallies every week on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House to promote the issue of pub, uh, public housing, a solution to the housing affordability crisis as well as homelessness. And uh, if you go to the website, Pips, go, go to the Facebook page, Public Housing Everybody's Business, or Defend and Extend Public Housing. You'll have details there of the uh, times of the rallies. And on the 13th of November, it'll be from 5.30 to 6.30pm on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. And on the 20th of November, it'll be from 1 to 2pm on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. And on the 27th of November, it'll be from 1 to 2pm on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. You can also go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. That's right, Joseph Toscano. Or... YouTube channel, public interest before corporate interest. I try to do a YouTube presentation every week on a uh, what I think is an interesting subject. The whole point of the YouTube presentation is to get uh, anti-authoritarian ideas across to a wider audience because I'm 100% realistic. We are on the margins of the margins as a social and political movement. I mean... Uh, I'm involved in many activities to promote the ideas of creating society without rulers and it is not an easy task. And if you really want to get up the authorities' nose, they don't care how often you protest, they don't care how many people they knock over, how many people they jail, how much repressive legislation they pass. But what they do care about is uh, you taking away a little bit of their uh, parliamentary power so if you want to join a uh, radical organisation that's uh, interested in uh, changing society for the better, well, you can't go past public interest before corporate interests. Go to their website, 
pibci.net, download the application form, join today. Hopefully by the end of 2020, we'll be a registered political party and we'll be able to cause a little bit of uh, heartache to those that currently uh, exercise power by introducing alternative ideas. And I'll tell you how bad things are today. Now, if you look at the House of Representatives federally and the uh, Senate, we're always told there's all these crossbenchers, all these wonderful crossbenchers, okay? And currently, there's legislation in Parliament, which may or may not be passed by the Senate in the next fortnight or so, that wishes to pass legislation to actually deliver the final blow to a crippled, a legally crippled trade union movement. Because Australia is one of the few countries in the Western world where withdrawing your labour is an illegal act. Unless you withdraw your labour outside an enterprise bargaining agreement period, you can be fined up to $10,000 a day personally for going on strike and your union can be deregistered. But as this hasn't been, you know, this really hasn't killed the trade union movement. They're looking for... The next step. And the next step is legislation, which which is just quite extraordinary when you think about it. And legislation which will attach demerit points to trade union leaders and allow them to be removed from office. Legislation which will allow trade unions to be automatically deregistered. Legislations which will allow trade unions to basically become an arm of government. And obviously the, uh, you've got the usual suspects in this battle. But then when you look at the co- parliamentary crossbenchers in the Senate, and this is what public interest before corporate interest is all about, is to actually possibly pick up one of these Senate seats one day and actually put in some proper debate. You've got Mr Bernardi Corby, whatever his name is, you know, some conservative from South Australia always votes with the government, 99.9% of the time. Then you've got some ex-liberals masquerading as a central alliance in South Australia, two senators there, who are, um, most of the times vote for the government. Then you've got Divided Nation led by Pauline Hanson, two Senate seats, almost always votes with the government, although she's having second thoughts about the trade union uh, Deal because obviously she understands that she needs. They need to widen their appeal. They can't just you know keep voting for the government. And then you got independent senator or the Jackie Lambie network in Tasmania, and uh, you know that's it. That's the crossbenchers. That's the breadth of political debate. Think about it. Think about it. Come and join Pipsy. Public interest before corporate interest. Now, for the rest of the program, I'm going to talk about Eureka. I'm going to say, oh, no, not about Eureka again. Well, what's a rebellion that failed within half an hour got to do with Australia in 2019? Why would I bother going to Ballarat on Tuesday, the 3rd of December, to celebrate the 160th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion? What's it got to do with me? Isn't the Eureka Rebellion all about, you know, racism? And it's quite extraordinary. And in 2002, my late 
wife and partner Ellen Jose and I went to Ballarat to join the Eureka Rebellion celebrations on the 3rd of December. And guess what? Nothing. Nothing. Tomorrow, yeah, there'll be something on Sunday. Nothing on the day it occurred. And the thing that was on Sunday was poorly organised, poorly attended. So we decided in 2003 to launch a new group called Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations. I know, it's a mouthful. Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations. And for the last, since 2003, sorry, since 2002, we've been involved in uh, celebrating the Eureka Rebellion. And and, and, uh, quite depressingly, we are one of the few groups that actually now continues to celebrate the Eureka Rebellion on the 3rd of December, 1854. So let's look at it. And look at it. Why is something that happened 165 years ago of any relevance to us in 2019? Well, on the 11th of November, important day in Australian history, 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed. Now, gold was discovered in Victoria around 1851, and although the Legislative Council attempted to repress the news, it got out pretty quickly. And by 1854, tens of thousands of immigrants had flooded into Victoria. Now, Victoria was, you know, an infant colony. And the history of Victoria is a particularly noxious history. Because in 1835, that's right, 1835, which was what, you know, less than 20 years previously, the Free Enterprise, you like that, it sailed up the uh, Yarra from Tasmania and uh, the dispossession and genocide of Victoria's booming Aboriginal population began in earnest so that the land could be turned over to sheep. That's right, sheep. And just to give you an idea of what a prosperous place this was before European colonisation, a French explorer went up into Port Phillip Bay the, and the Arra in 1792 said that at night there were so many campfires burning that it looked like a European city. So this was a vibrant culture that had existed for over fifty, almost 50,000 years. But within 20 years of a colonisation process beginning, the Aboriginal population had been reduced from over 150,000 in, in the area of Victoria to less than 2,000. Through a deliberate policy of genocide, so the land could be stolen and used to graze sheep, to produce wool for the textile mills, the booming textile industry in, the, uh, in England. Industrial Revolution. You like that? The Industrial Revolution. But when gold was discovered in 1851, everything changed. 
1851, the whole of Victoria was owned by 700 squatters. A squatter is somebody who just took over a piece of land, had a bit of capital, brought across sheep, then used ticket of leave men and women who were uh, ex-convicts, paid them a pittance to run their estates. And these were estates. So when gold was discovered, what was the first thing that they were concerned about? Their labour force. Their cheap labour force. Because without cheap labour, they could not grow sheer sheep and continue to make their extraordinary profits. So the Victorian Legislative Council passed legislation which levied a tax on each individual miner. Instead of levying a tax on the gold which was extracted from the ground, they levied a tax on each individual miner. That was the kernel of the revolution, of the rebellion. So when thousands of people, tens of thousands, streamed in Victoria in what you'd call a 19th century Tatslotto exercise, a little bit like Tatslotto, you know, a few people won the big one, a lot of people made a little bit of a finding and most people, you know, lost. Lost. Think of gold mining as a bit of Tatslotto, you know, pre-Tatslotto. But people flooded in from all corners of the world. You had the Chartists from England. People were involved in a 30-year struggle for uh, universal male suffrage in England. You had refugees. Oh, that's a terrible word, isn't it? And asylum seekers from around the globe. Many of them refugees from the failed wave of revolutions which swept Europe in 1848 who came to Australia. You had people from the United States of America who came to Australia looking, you know, for their fortunes, trying to break away from the old European traditions, the old class divisions. And when they came to Victoria, what did they find? A tiny replica of the inequalities they faced back in their own countries. It's no wonder that there was public meetings, consternation, fighting with the authorities across the state. And as most of the Victoria police had run off to get their own Tatslotto ticket and try to find some gold, the government had a little bit of trouble maintaining order in the gold fields. But slowly but surely they built up the Victorian police force, which was officially formed in 1853. If you think the Victoria Police Force today with the little body camera tricks has got a problem, it's nothing compared to 1853. And obviously you had the armed forces behind them. And to make matters worse, they thought, ah, oh, we need a bit of discipline in this place. And they appointed Governor Hotham, an ex-naval uh, officer, to be the Governor of Victoria. So they weren't happy with Mr Latrobe. He was a little bit soft, they thought. So here you have 1854, the 11th of December, 1850, sorry, 11th of November, 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed, which represented the interests of the Ballarat miners, which 
total in number around 30,000, including men, women and children. There's a lot of myths about this rebellion. One, and I'm going to debunk all these myths before I talk about the rebellion, and I might even continue the discussion next week, because this is all about getting you to understand the significance of this event and to join us in Ballarat on December the 3rd from 4am to 10pm to reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. The first myth is that it was a revolt by small business people against taxation. Garbage. If you look at the charter of the Ballarat Reform League, it was all about equality. It was about universal male suffrage. It was about the protection of the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. It was about parliamentary representation. But the second informa- misinformation about the Eureka Rebellion was some, it was some racist uprising. Now, obviously, there's been racist uprisings in this country, but there is one rebellion which was international in nature. It was the Eureka Rebellion. People of all shapes and sizes, colours and religions and races joined together in their struggle to achieve some justice. And all those racists, you know, talk about the rebellion burn, you know, the beginning of Australian nationalism or the beginning of, you know, white Australia. Think again. Because the facts, and that's right, I deal with facts, not myths. The facts tell a different story. If you look at the names of the people in the old Ballarat Cemetery who are buried in a mass grave who lost their lives at Eureka, one of the names is Edward Fonan, young lemonade salesman on the goldfields from East Prussia, Jewish. If you look at the 13 people who were tried for high treason, First man tried, John Joseph, was a black American from New York. Some say a freed slave who shot and mortally wounded Captain Wise, the deputy commander of the British forces. Then you've got another black man from Kingston, Jamaica. It was the Commonwealth of Australia. This If you were willing to take up arms and fight, it didn't matter what colour you were. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what your religion was. It didn't matter what language you spoke. It was an international uprising, mainly of asylum seekers, refugees from the old world. And the third furphy, The third lie about the Eureka Rebellion is that, you know, what's it got to do with Aboriginal Australia? Well, Raphael Camboni, the elected leader of the non-English-speaking miners who were involved in the rebellion, lived with the local Aboriginal tribes for 12 months. And when he was uh, finally freed from prison... While he was in prison at Pentridge, I should say, while he was in prison at Pentridge, he wrote, believe it or not, an opera called Gubernia, whose main actors 
were basically Aboriginal people because he saw the Aboriginal people for the first time in Australian history because he had lived with them. He saw the Aboriginal people as the victims of British colonialism. So what is the Eureka Rebellion? Well, as I said, I'll speak more about it next week, but it's encapsulated in the Eureka Oath. And I know people, you know, they pray and they read their holy texts. They affirm. But I can tell you one thing which encapsulates the essence of egalitarian struggle is the Eureka Oath. And the Eureka Oath was sworn by over 500 armed miners at Bakery Hill in Ballarat on the 29th of November 1854. And the Eureka Oath is very simple. And I'll go through the Eureka Oath because it highlights the four central elements of the Eureka Rebellion, a rebellion which continues to have reverberations across this country. It says, We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. First word, we. Us. We. Not single white males, not men, not women, not black, not white, not Hindu, not Christian, but we. We the people. We. So internationalism. We. Not we Australians, we Victorians, we English people, but we, the people. We swear by the Southern Cross. Now, a lot of people think this is a Christian analogy. Well, it isn't. There are two stars which you see in the Southern Hemisphere which you do not see in the Northern Hemisphere. One is the West Papuan shining star and two is the Eureka constellation, the Southern Cross. So when people were lying in their tents, they weren't looking at their iPads or uh, playing with their mobile phones or uh, listening to their, uh, you know... uh, whatever, they look up in the sky, they could actually see the Southern Cross. And that told them that they were in a new land, in a land where they didn't want the class divisions of the old to be replicated in this land. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other a fancy sentence for mutual aid, to stand truly by each other, to work shoulder to shoulder, to protect each other's backs, to come together, to defy authority and overcome authority. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our 
rights and liberties. They believed they were born with inalienable rights and liberties no government could take away. No corporation could take away. They were born with these rights and liberties. And historically, this revolt and this rebellion has been written out of the pages of the this country's history. And there's other aspects of this collective amnesia are addressed. It's time that we reclaimed our story. That we reclaim the story which has given us most of the advantages that we have today. So join me next week. And well, I'll explain, I'll keep talking about the Eureka Rebellion and its significance of the 21st century. Go and have a look at that oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. If you want to learn more about the activities from 4am to 10pm on Tuesday the 3rd of December, you can leave a contact address on 0439 395 489 0439 and I'll send you a program. You can go to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. You can go to the Pipsy Facebook page, pipsy.net, and the program's up there. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. The program's up there. I'll go through the program next week. So remember... Reclaim your story. Tell your story the way you want it to be told. Because history is not only written by the victors, it's also written and rewritten by the vanquished. But we need to understand that history. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. There's many ways to contact me. You can write to me. Yes, I do still answer letters. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. You can go to the the, uh, Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. Toscano for the public. Public housing, everybody's business. Defend and extend public house. You can go to Steps to a Home, and it goes on and on. And you can watch yours truly. You can see how decrepit physically I am these days to go to the, uh, the uh, YouTube channel, Public Interests Before Corporate Interests. But put down Tuesday the 3rd of December on your calendar, 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. Don't forget the annual Eureka Dinner at the Queen's Head Hotel and uh, the guest speaker will be Anthony Cam, the manager of the Eureka Centre in Ballarat. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week via your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week. Evil minds that plot destruction construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.